Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Very pleased to be here again today. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon once again. Joined in studio, as always. <laughs> it's been an adventure today. Hey, yes, We've it got has. our executive producer, Krista Baruti. Technology, I'm telling you. It's like, it's 2015. Are you is, ready? Is and Mercury like, in retrograde? No, I, something's <laughs> happening. Well, today is our uh, part of our ongoing series that we've been doing with the Medical Association of Georgia, and uh, today I'm sitting in studio with a couple of folks that have much to do with the uh, priorities uh, dealing with the legislation and what we're going to be working on in a given year for the Medical Association of Georgia. Uh, former MAG president, Dr. Michael Green, he's currently the chairman of the Medical Association of Georgia's Council on Legislation. I'm appreciating the fact that you took some time out of your practice. You do have an active practice in Macon area, from what I understand. So taking some time away from the office to come and join us on the mic, tell us a little bit about MAG's legislative priorities this year is much appreciated. So thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. And we've also got uh, the Medical Association of Georgia's Director of Government Relations, Marcus Downs. So thank you also for sitting in with us and uh, sharing some information about these important topics, I'm sure, for your members They'll be uh, keen to hear what you all are working on. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So let's get down to that. Uh, obviously, one of the big functions of the Medical Association of Georgia is advocating on behalf of the physicians that comprise your membership, which, as we know, is somewhere north of 7,500 members, if I'm correct. Um, so talk about that when it comes to determining what our process is for this year, what we're going to focus on as it relates to um, the, our, our efforts to influence legislation to try to have it make sense to the providers uh, that are here and to provide for a good working environment so that they can help patient outcomes. Talk about that particular priority of the association, and then if we can, we'll talk a little bit about how is that process kind of shaped by its members and the, the leadership. Okay. Well, first off, we are very democratic organization. And there are a number of ways that any individual member can bring an item to the organization for inclusion in its legislative agenda. The most common way is to come before our House of Delegates. We have a meeting every year comprised of multiple specialties, multiple practice styles, uh, locations across the state of over 200 physicians. And they actually set the policy for our organization. So if you had an issue, you could bring it through a delegate from your special society, a delegate from your county society or district society to that body. They would deliberate it, uh, vote on it, and it would then go as policy of our organization. Another potential way is to bring it to the Council of Legislation. And the Council is the body that sort of does the in-depth work, uh, digs into the details, and makes recommendations to the board of directors and to the House of Delegates on certain more overarching areas. Now, that council is made up of both MAG members who have been appointed directly and representatives from the major specialty societies across the state. So that we have a very broad-based representation of uh, 
opinion, perception, again, practice style, et cetera, on that council. The recommendations from that council go to our board of directors. The board then decides whether they're in favor or not in favor of those recommendations, and once again, that flows back through the House of Delegates. Yeah, so I, I assume that there's, out of our membership funds, that contributes to a pool of, of monies that we can use to fund our efforts to speak with you know legislators both at the state level and from what I understand there's even some work that's done at the national level as well to talk about a variety of legislative processes are going on and so part of the, what we're talking about here is we're trying to determine what are we going to focus on this year and kind of where do we how do we allocate those various funds to pay for what we're trying to do is that is that on the right track that's on the right track there are obviously line item budgets for you know payment of staff and all the uh, associated uh, uh, communications and that kind of thing that goes on. Uh, at the national level, uh, we're not as formally engaged. Uh, we have a state PAC that is a state PAC only. We don't operate a federal PAC. Right. Uh, we can make recommendations to the American Medical Association's PAC for support of federal candidates. Uh, we also tend to have members go to Washington from time to time to talk to the Georgia delegation about issues at the national level uh, that concern them and concern MAG. I know that uh, I was looking over some of the items uh, that are listed for some attention this year, including uh, preserving physician autonomy, third-party payer and insurance, tort reform, and others. Um, how do those typically get floated up? I mean, what what brings them to a forefront? Is it the way that existing legislation is kind of impacting a given area that's that a physician or physicians in around the state are saying, hey, this is causing us challenges because of this. This is getting in the way of us delivering health care uh, effectively because of that. Is that kind of how the process goes that someone would bring this given topic up to uh, have you all you know, put some focus on it? Usually, yes. Uh, now, some of these topics are so overarching that it affects every physician in practice everywhere. Some of the others are more focused. Uh, I'll use an example of some uh, scope of practice issues. Scope affects everyone, and every physician has an interest in making sure that whatever the scope of practice is for people who are involved in health care have proper training, education, background, and oversight. Uh, a common thing in the last 10 years or so were increasing the amount of things that optometrists could do. While, again, that has concern across the board, it's more focused on ophthalmology. Uh, when physical therapists come for scope of practice expansion across the board, but perhaps more focused in orthopedics. And there are examples of this uh, as well in things that affect pediatric patients more than adults or vice versa. So the, where it sits on somebody's uh, radar varies on how much it directly impacts either their personal practice or their community or their hospital or their large group, or whatever it is. But pretty much everything that we deal with has an impact on medicine and the patients of the state as, whole, as a whole. And, and I'd just like to add, I think that the, the scope conversation is critical uh, to all physicians, you just to reiterate what Dr. Green has said. And, and, and the reason why it's so critical is because it establishes precedent. And today, uh, you may have um, 
PTs and orthopods having a, a challenge about what works for one group and what works for another and potential scope expansion. Tomorrow it could be ophthalmologists and optometrists. But at the end of the day, uh, there may always be some uh, consternation about what privileges one group has to uh, participate in a certain activity and what the other group has. And so, you know, we can see that from specialty to specialty to specialty. And it's very important that we remain um, vigilant and active when it comes to participating in scope discussions. And, you know, one of the things that's really special about the Medical Association is, you know, we understand that we, we don't say no to everything, but we can't say yes to just anything. Right. And so, you know, I really, you know, I applaud Dr. Green and the work of our Council on Legislation and being very deliberate in how we approach scope issues. They're not just knee-jerk responses to legislation that's put out there for, for public consumption. It is, uh, it is a very deliberate process, and there's some very, um, very active back and forth. And, um, you know, it's, it's done with, with great responsibility and care for mm-hmm. the patient. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure as it relates to talking about the topic of scope of care or scope of practice, for example, uh, for whether it's a mid-level or uh, some of these others, uh, therapists of different kinds, so forth, obviously opportunity and from just a pure business perspective is one thing, and I'm sure it's important. I realize that. But also along with it, I know as it relates to mid-level providers, for example, there's a measure of oversight that must be dealt with when it relates to expanding the scope of practice for those types of providers. And I'm sure that that kind of comes into play on some of these other areas too. Um, When we expand the scope of care for a given set of uh, providers that aren't physicians, then how does that impact the physician? Is, there, is, is somebody going to now come to the physician and say, okay, well, now you have to oversee this other provider. Now you have a measure of responsibility for someone else's practice that you didn't have before, uh, elevating their level of risk and exposure in a given situation or you know, at a minimum workload um, and responsibility. So there's other measures uh, that go along with that kind of concept versus just simply someone else is coming into my sandbox and going to be doing work that I want to be doing. And I think that that's a, an unfortunate misconception that most non-medical people have when we're talking about scope issues, that it's a financial issue or it's, as you say, you're in my sandbox issue. And that's not truly the case in most settings. In fact, the vast majority of settings. We feel that there is an important role for all the people we've talked about and other mid-level and other healthcare providers, whether it's a, a psychologist, a, a therapist, a physical therapist, a nurse practitioner, a, a PA, etc. They all are a very important part of the healthcare team. And I use that word very specifically. In the team, however, there can only be one in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you have a committee. And we know that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you have to have the individual with the highest level of training, experience, expertise, and education with supervision and direction of other members of the team, even though they may be very well uh, skilled in their area, they're not at the top of that tree Mm -hmm. or that chain. So one of the things that gives us a great deal of heartburn 
is when any of these other providers say, well, we want to do this without physician oversight. Well, no, just across the board, no. Until you can show the same level of training, then you shouldn't have the same level of responsibility and the same level of ability to treat the patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of things that can be done with physician oversight appropriately. And if those levels of other training were adequate, then let's close the medical schools and just go with those levels of training. We can put out a lot more people. Right, right. But it's simply not true. And and and, I, and again, I, I'd add, you know, one of the things that's so special about MAG is while we represent the interests of the physician, and we want to make sure that we've created a or helped create a good practice environment for physicians. Uh, that translates to patients as well. Right. And so, one of the central themes behind any piece of legislation that we uh, that we're interested in seeing become law is whether it's good for the patient. Dr. Green referenced earlier uh, the difference or potential differences in training, and I've got a, uh, a chart here that we've developed at the Medical Association, and it's not to show that doctors are better than any other profession, but it does show the difference in training. And one of the things I'd like to point out, a medical doctor and a DO, they spend about 12,000 to 16,000 patient hours, and if you compare that to what some of the other extenders uh, use whenever they see patient hours, it's... It, in terms it, of the time while they're in training, you're yes, saying, while yeah. they're in training, right. uh, it uh, there's a reason uh, why why we advocate so strongly to make sure that the physician is seen as the lead of that health healthcare team. They have a huge responsibility uh, on their shoulders, and and they carry it well. It's important to point out too that we don't let physicians go out and practice without supervised training. Uh, You know, when I came out of medical school, I had an MD degree. Was I ready to go see patients on my own? Oh, no. (laughs) And I found that out even more over the next three years. Right. Uh, So the the concept of experiential training with supervision is critical to patients. You can learn all you want to in a classroom or in a laboratory or with shadowing someone, but until you've got someone directly with you uh, saying, okay, I see how you got here, but here's where you you need to look differently or here's what you need to consider, then that's what really molds you into being able to take care of those patients. Putting some context behind the academic learning that you've been doing. And earlier in our conversation, you talked about uh, how the the flow kind of runs from the providers at the at the grassroots level at the you know at the front line where the care is being provided how issues of focus are potentially recommended up uh, through the uh, association to you know various uh, levels within the um, organization to ever smaller kind of groups of of leadership um, can you talk about What's that What's that discussion like as it relates to once we've gotten our set of, of issues kind of brought to us through our committees uh, up to the Leadership Council? What's the conversation like, if you can share about that? What, what's the conversation like as we're trying to determine, okay, here are the – how many do you typically get on a, on, a, on a yearly basis, just out of curiosity? How many do you get sent to you for consideration? You know, Hundreds, thousands, or well, not that handfuls? Not quit. Uh, <laughs> You know, in, in any given year, we may have anywhere between five and 30 okay. that come forward for specific uh, so, consideration. So now we've got some number. We've got 
20 issues brought to us of obvious importance that uh, that need some measure of attention. So what's the conversation like as it relates to, okay, looking forward 2015, we got to hone this down. We can't do f- really a good effective focus on 20 or 30 items. So how do we get it down to, you know, this relatively short list that I've got here of, of highly important issues that we're going to focus on for the year? Just so our listeners out there, obviously many of whom are going to be physicians who are wondering that, uh, how does that flow? Well, there's a number of items that have to be looked at. You know, the first is, is this a very narrow issue or is this a broad issue? In general, broad issues take a little higher priority. It doesn't always work that way, but, you know, if you've got something that's affecting 12,000 physicians versus 200, you know, you, you have to sort of look at that with a little different different eye. The other is having read the tea leaves, knowing what the uh, climate is for that in a number of different ways. Uh, is it feasible under current law or do you have to change law? You know, can it be done with regulation or does it require legislation? Uh, do you have other allies outside the medical association that also would support or potentially oppose an issue? Uh, is there background data that needs to be gathered before you take that forward in a given year? Uh, a number of times we find that, well, we've got an issue, we know it inside out, we're convinced it's right, but the legislators know nothing about it. They're not physicians, they're not in healthcare, so they don't understand the issue. And it may take a year or two years of sort of ongoing right. explanation about educational what process for them. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, is it is it ripe to bring that issue yet? Do we do we have the understanding among the legislative bodies before we bring that out? Uh, those are all impacting what we're doing. External time uh, pressures from either the federal government or other agencies that say well, this is going to happen at X period of time, so we have to deal with it before X uh, may force something into the agenda. And then our landscape is so broad, we often have to react to legislation mm-hmm. that is brought with someone else during the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a huge part of it. Um, work at the legislature is not, um, it's not scripted. And so uh, while we often uh, have our legislative priorities approved every October, uh, the work becomes very organic. Uh, Right now we've got two major pieces that we'd like to work on for this 2015 session. We think at least one of those pieces uh, will probably be a two-year endeavor. Uh, But there are other people who'd like to see bills passed as well, and that requires us to sometimes – put our pieces on hold very briefly in order to be able to properly address some of the issues that are being presented to us. I'm sure as it relates to the providers out there who are members of Medical Association of Georgia that uh, I'm sure some number of them feel as though they don't really have a hand in what's going on, what our priorities are, but obviously we know that's not true. Talk about how does somebody who has a thought in their mind, I wish this would, would be done, I wish we could focus on that, how does the provider who's a member of Medical Association of Georgia get involved with the process, and why should they? Well, there's a couple of ways they can get involved. If you simply, I want this issue known about, I want to hear what Mag's doing it, they can do something as simple as call me. Uh, my contact information is on the website. They can call Marcus. Uh, if they want to get more involved in that, they can either – 
get involved at their local county medical society or specialty society. Uh, they can put a request in. I'd like to be considered to be a member of the Council on Legislation. Uh, so there's a, a number of ways they can get more specifically involved than just throwing the issue on the table and say, here, go deal with that. And so why should they do that? I mean, why, why, why should I take the time? Well, if we look back over the last 20 years or so, the changes that have occurred in the landscape of medicine, both from legislative and regulatory, have been arguably the greatest since medicine came about. Uh, there's been more changes in how it is provided, how it is paid for, how patients are viewed either through large insurers, large health systems. Uh, population metrics are now becoming the big thing to look at. Uh, these are complex issues. Uh, even with the uh, Affordable Care Act that was passed, the average physician doesn't have the time to dissect a 2,500-page document. <laughs> Apparently neither of the people who passed it. I, hey. I was going to leave that on the floor, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, so you, you do sort of require someone that's got the resources to be able to go into an issue and explain why, well, well, wait a minute, we know you want to do X, but you were you aware that it does Y? Right. Uh, because you didn't know this other thing was sitting out here. The second is, as is in many instances, if we don't take the lead in promoting the welfare of the patients of this state, as well as keeping the profession of medicine strong, then we simply cede that to somebody else. Someone is going to do these things. Right. And who better prepared and who better situated to provide the input to the legislature about what is the best way to provide that care, what is the best way to take care of patients uh, than the physicians that are doing it on a day-in and day-out basis. Now, Marcus, something we were talking about before we went on the air, um, as you were describing, Dr. Green, um, that Obviously, overarching issues that encompass all of the MAG members are you know, going to take some measure of priority, but there are specialists in our state. And um, you know, talk about how the association deals with that in terms of interfacing with the, the societies that, that face a given specialty so that you can collaborate and they can interface with you to advocate you know, from legislative perspective around a, a given specialty. Yeah, absolutely. So we like to look at MAG as an umbrella that covers all specialties. So everyone is welcome and invited, not just welcome, but invited to participate in our activities. They're, they're invited to take part in how we develop our legislative priorities. Uh, one of the things that we do during the legislative session is we meet weekly with every specialty. and We let them know what our posture is on bills that have been presented um, we let them know what we'd like to present, and we inquire what they're interested in. And if they feel that there are any threats coming their way, you know, how we can band together as a house of medicine. Because as we indicated earlier, precedent is critical at the General Assembly. We want to make sure that we're always watchful and attentive to uh, threats that may exist for one group. Because if it's out there for this group today, it could be out for another group tomorrow. So we try to be uh, very inclusive. One of the other things that we do is uh, uh, once every two weeks, we host a council on legislative call uh, with all the specialties. And this way, uh, people cannot say that MAG has taken a position. People cannot pin it solely on MAG. They cannot 
uh, make it seem that it's only a mag decision. Just a small group of people making decisions for everybody. There's actually influence oh, and, and input coming from all directions. Absolutely. And and, and, and I got to tell you, that's one of the things, in my opinion, that makes mag such a, uh, a responsible voice. Because, you know, as I've said to others, we provide a forum for every specialty, every demographic, every employee status um, for physicians to, to, to come together and debate issues. There are no other groups that I can speak of that provide the type of forum that we provide. And so historically, uh, MAG would have gone to the Capitol and said, hey, we represent the doctors. And uh, many years ago, that may have been true because there was a totally different practice environment. You have far more independent physicians. Now you've got physicians who are now employed and, you know, they have voices. But, you know, one of the things that's special about MAG is we provide an opportunity for them to come and talk with the independent physician, with, with those large clinic owners. And, and, and again, you know, we debate the issue and we, we do it responsibly over time. You know, it's not a two-week task force that we put together. It's not a weekend uh, event that we put together to uh, to grapple with some of the challenging issues. It is a lengthy, often year-long process that we um, give individuals an opportunity to discuss over time, and uh, and we like to hear both sides of an issue. And, um, and after we've done that, we try to bring forth some responsible recommendations to the General Assembly. You're listening to Top Docs Radio, and I'm speaking with Marcus Downs and Dr. Michael Green of the Medical Association of Georgia. We've been learning a little bit about the process of how given years legislative focuses are determined with the association, how its members can have some measure of influence and input on that process and what those priorities are, uh, obviously encouraging uh, the membership to, to to get involved at whatever level that their time permits, um, whether it's just providing feedback and input, uh, interfacing by phone with uh, leadership here, or getting a little bit more involved in trying to sit uh, on committees or, or be a delegate uh, from their regional areas. So uh, obviously, you know, a lot of important reasons why somebody would want to, at a minimum, stay engaged. What are we focusing on? And what are my thoughts on that? Um, you know, something that came up this morning, I'm, I'm, I also host a show called Health Connect South Radio. And one of the topics that we talked about was uh, how the physician shortage is prevalent in the rural communities. We know that Georgia is a state that you know has a handful of you know large to medium-sized metropolitan areas, but by and large it's a rural state. It's uh, many small towns uh, with you know many of them having very limited access to physician care. One of the challenges I know from uh, earlier episodes of doing our discussions with Medical Association of Georgia is the limitations set on residency quantities, how many people can be in a given residency. Talk about that. What are we doing about that? Uh, Obviously, putting out more physicians through residency. We talked about the foreign medical graduates, for example, and the backlog that gets caught at the residency availability. So what are we doing about those topics? Well, first off, most people don't understand that we have a large number of medical students that don't come back to this state. We turn out far more medical students. We have residency slots to train residents. Mm -hmm. And people tend to land where they They, do their residency more often than not, or at least a good measure of the time. A a large majority of residents will wind up practicing within a 100-mile radius of where they did their residency. They've been there five, six years sometimes. Not or more. Where they went to medical school. Right. So the issue is just that. You know, I'm interested in specialty X, but there's only three specialty spots in the state, so I've got to go to 
name another state, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm more likely to stay there than I am to come back. So the idea is we have to get our residency slot availability, I think, at least up to a minimum that matches our medical school uh, graduates Mm -hmm. to have them have the capability to remain within the state to do their graduate medical education and then be far more likely to remain in the state. What's the limiting factor on those seats? Well, that is a complex little question. Uh, part of it is funding. Uh, you know, uh, historically, most of the graduate medical education funding for residents was done through the Medicare program. Some of that is beginning to change, and they are looking at different revenue streams to be able to expand that. Some of it has to do with the availability of faculty. You can only teach so many residents in a given time frame. Some of it has to be the availability of patients. You know, if I'm in, let's say, Rome, Georgia, who has a a good-sized, long-standing family practice residency, but if I go from 26 residents to 200 residents, well, that means you get to see a patient (laughs) about every three weeks. Uh, You know, you simply don't have the numbers to create that experiential learning that we were talking about earlier. So it's a combination of expanding the ability to have residents then expanding the faculty, and then making sure that the patient base is adequate for their training. You so you'd have through. to do it in kind of a progressive fashion. We swell it a little this year, then the next year, just to be able to keep pace with the, as you talked about, the faculty side, as much as being able to get patients out there uh, more able to get access. Yeah, and I'd like to add some more context to that, uh, just to give people a good picture of the challenge that we're facing here in Georgia. Every year we graduate roughly 850 or so MDs, you know, from medical schools here in Georgia. And every year we lose about 50% of what we like to call our medical intellectual capital because we cannot accommodate those residents. Those residents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to give credit to the General Assembly and the governor uh, for their efforts to help with the residency issue. Uh, Over the past two years, they have appropriated funds. Uh, This past year, there was a study committee that looked at um, medical education, continuing medical education, and and, and the state is very much aware of the shortage that we have, and and, and I believe that they're making very uh, sincere efforts to improve that shortage and make sure that we've got uh, the residency spaces, they're doing everything that they can from a state's perspective. Uh, as you said, it, it is very incremental. Uh, it, it, it's going to take time. But as long as they're not cutting funds and as long as they're not decreasing the number of spaces, we think it's it's moved in a, in a positive direction. From the funding perspective, are there things on the horizon? You talked about the fact that funding historically has come heavily, if not entirely, from the Medicare funding or of the government. But are there other ideas or other sources of funding that uh, that we're looking at that might potentially supplement that to help it grow? Since obviously Medicare is not necessarily going to be a swelling pool of funds out there. So, you know, are there some ideas that might either semi-privatize it in some form or fashion or uh, deal with the reimbursement side of things that might possibly provide some greater revenues to help provide that? You know, there's a lot of ideas that have been floated both within the state and nationally on doing that, ranging from state governments beginning to pick up some of that load versus the federal government to uh, partnerships with either municipalities that want to have that resource in their community. 
uh, to foundations to I mean the, the suggestions have been across I mean, the board. I'd, I'd vote for a penny uh, on my tax uh, if I was a resident to be able to have greater access to physician care in my state. So you know something like that is what I'm thinking. Yeah, all, all of those have been been bandied about, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you get to a point where. All of them are good ideas, but is there an overarching, again, sort of cohesive way to go forward with this? The answer is not yet. Uh, the problem is recognized. The roadblocks to fixing the problems are recognized, but we don't yet have the full answers of how to overcome all of those roadblocks. And as you say, that's going to be kind of hammered out as we incrementally move forward with this. As we started the show, obviously I introduced the fact that uh, one of the big responsibilities for the Medical Association is advocating on the behalf of the physicians as it relates to legislation that's passed in the state. So can you talk about some of the some of the wins that we've had uh, with regards to either crafting new legislation or improving on legislation that was passed maybe with uh, less input from the physicians in the state than maybe it should have had to start with? You know, we've had uh, a number of what I think are significant uh, pieces of legislation the last several years. I'll try to highlight a couple of three of those. One of those is what was called the Provider Shield Act. And basically what that said is with all the administrative new requirements and 14 different agencies telling you to do it three different ways, that we felt that licensure of a physician in this state should be based purely on education, training, and capability that whether you got dinged from the federal government because you didn't click box B on patient C three times in a 10-day period was irrelevant to whether you were capable of practicing medicine. You might not be capable of practicing Medicare. Uh, you know, you might not be able capable of practicing computer, but you could see the patient take care of the patient. Uh, that was a an extremely important change in the way that the legislature would view why we license physicians in this state and why you have a license at all. It is purely to ensure that you are capable of providing that level of care. It is a protection for the patients of the state. So whether or not I can punch those boxes or hit those keys to make the bean counters happy about something is irrelevant to that. Uh, Another one, a uh, prompt pay being yeah, something that's out there. Prompt pay was the uh, was wrapped into how do you keep rural practices going? Uh, rural practices have a disproportionate amount of lower income patients, mm-hmm. of Medicaid patients, of self pay patients uh, than more urban practices generally do. The third-party payers, which is how we refer to insurers across the board, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, Blue Cross, whomever, right. uh, have always within their contractual agreements that, you know, you're required to turn this, this, and this in within this period of time, or you can't bill for it anymore. Well, they don't usually have languages that, well, we got to pay you within this period of time. That's <laughs> yeah, pretty much not, yeah. not there. Uh, so the prompt pay was an effort to say, okay, you have a multibillion-dollar corporation with IT assets that are incredible, and you can't turn a check around in 30 days? Uh, explain that, please. Right. Uh, so it was, it was an attempt to say, 
look, we're not asking for you to turn it around the next day. We're having reasonable time frames that you should be able to process a claim, return the payment to the person that appropriately submitted the claim, uh, because the cost of providing medical care, again, more so in rural often than urban, has climbed to the point that there is a major issue if there's a cash flow problem. That's right. Well, it's a business. I mean, we talk about health care and outcomes, and obviously that's a huge focus, but the reality of it is any physician's office is a business like any other that's that's can fall victim to lack of cash flow. It's it's a fact. Well, you're exactly right, and there, there's another piece that, that we'd like to highlight. It was a physician autonomy bill that was passed in 2012, uh, this bill prevents the government from tying licensure to program participation. So it says that uh, licensure cannot be contingent upon a physician's participation in Medicaid, Medicare, or any other third-party program that's offered. And I think the point that you made is, is an outstanding point. Uh, physicians are a very uh, substantial part of Georgia's economy. We account for about a billion dollars worth of revenue in state. And it's not just the local. doctor. I mean, right. each doctor is going to have one, two, four, ten people yeah. that, that work with each physician. Well, so. they're going to have individual staff that right. they hire, but the economic impact goes far beyond that. Sure. Absolutely. Because you have to have, you're renting a building from someone or you yeah. purchased a building. You've got, you know, various and sundry services that you pay for. Uh, I don't have the number at the top of my head, but uh, we had a study done through the University of Georgia a few years ago, and the numbers are staggering. Right. It's, yeah. it's roughly 100,000 jobs that are created as a result of independent physician practices. And so each physician practice averages between 6 and 10, 6 to 11 employees mm -hmm. that they're responsible for making sure they've met payroll for. and That's a lot of families. Yeah, that and, gets lost on a lot of families. And understand, that's independent physicians only. That doesn't take into account the Grady's, the Emory's, and et cetera, right. which have another Thousands huge of amount people, yeah, sure. of, of impact on that. In fact, most smaller communities, uh, if you take the medical community together as a whole for all the physicians, that may be the largest economic engine in the community. Mm -hmm. Now, from what I understand, the the state may be making making some changes as it relates to uh, having a single payer cover state health insurance benefit plans for you know people. How does that affect the physician side of things? Generally, it's a good thing. Uh, competition is always good. Uh, when you have a single payer, then they sort of know they have a captive population that everybody that's employed by the state is using my plan and they don't have a choice. So do I have to offer as good a package to that patient than if I had five of my competitors out there? Of course not. Do I have to be as friendly to physicians, diagnostic centers, ambulatory surgery centers for these patients? No, I don't. So it winds up with being, I feel, a negative for both the patient and the physicians. Uh, not only can the physician, you know, not do this procedure in this patient at this pot, the patient can't choose where they have it done either. So if you have more competition, then that changes the, mm -hmm. the playing field significantly. So in that situation, were they going with just a single, was it a private payer administering that plan versus something government run? Yeah, the, uh, the state health benefit plan uh, had switched back and forth a time or two over the last, what, 12 years between individual contracted private third-party payer gotcha. uh, entities. 
We've been talking with Dr. Green and Marcus Downs from the Medical Association of Georgia, getting to know about the uh, upcoming year's legislative priorities and just how that process comes to pass. Um, I know that uh, Medical Association Foundation is uh, working on an initiative to try to curb the rate of occurrence of prescription medication abuse and uh, and subsequent addiction. Uh, talk about it from the legislative perspective as it relates to your particular efforts at the uh, on the association side. One of the things that's important to us is the prescri- prescription drug monitoring program, and we are meeting with individuals. This is an appropriation issue, and we need to make sure that that program is funded, receives full funding, um, the prescription drug issue is rising to epidemic portions. Mm. And um, you know, I think we're going to see a couple of bills that come out this session that are aimed at um, aimed at looking at that issue. I'm not quite sure that they, that they go far enough. Uh, there's one bill that we've seen that is almost a, a solution looking for a problem. I think <laughs> that, uh, I, quite frankly, I think that uh, working with the MAG Foundation um, and everyone banding together to make sure that there is funding for the PDMP is probably the most responsible thing that we can do here in Georgia. And we're really excited about the work that the MAG Foundation has been doing on this. They've they've been uh, really leading the charge on, on a lot of these fronts. Uh, we're really glad to see that um, a lot of the people who support this program are in the governor's backyard. And, uh, and and we think that bodes well. I was really happy to have the opportunity to, to sit down with the folks from the foundation who are kind of leading the way as as it relates to that initiative and help them get the word out about what they're doing. And I've since that time um, seen some other efforts, you know, in television and other media that's talking about prescription medication. It's obviously on the rise uh, as it relates to people trying to make folks aware. And I think it's an easy thing to, to not really think about. And um, obviously, as it relates to our children, I think that's it's not just our kids, but I mean it's a, it's a certain certainly a key f- focus uh, because they're definitely impacted and it's causing you know either disruption of lives or even loss of lives in, in young people around our state. So it's great that uh, you're putting some efforts out as it relates to that. And I know that coming up on the 28th over at the Capitol, there's uh, something going on called the White Coat event. What can you tell me about that? Well, this is a opportunity that we've started putting forth a few years ago and inviting and requesting and uh, just coming short of demanding uh, (laughs) that uh, this is a time to make a presence known at the legislature that there are a number of people walking around with white coats that are physicians that are talking to legislators that are pulling their local representative or senator out on the the lines to discuss what's going on, to meet with them at lunch, to attend committee hearings, to get a little better idea of how the process works, and at times even do testimony uh, in front of those committees uh, about what's going on. The more we have our members and the physicians of the state that even aren't our members that understand the process and see exactly what is being debated, we feel the better we're able to represent those physicians and our patients and more appropriately they're able to say, well, well wait a minute, I, I sort of know how this works. You know, did they think about this? Uh, you know, when, when you try to educate yourself about a process, the more you know about the process, the more effective you are in implementing changes in that process mm-hmm. or influencing that process. 
we think it's a uh, uh, both a wonderful opportunity for the people that are involved in participating and an absolutely critical part of our ability to uh, show the legislature that this is not just Marcus and I and you know one or two other people down there, that this is something that's uh, important to physicians across the state. And, and I think this is a really big day for physicians, not just a big day for MAG, it's a big day for all physicians. And I think what makes it so important, they hear from me and my staff and our contract folks regularly. Uh, they know that we can articulate our issues. Uh, but more importantly, it gives the physician an opportunity to provide anecdotal evidence. There's something to be said when there's a specialist who comes in and has a conversation with their legislator about uh, the matter of scope expansion. Uh, the fact that that patient is touched by that physician, uh, is seen by that physician, and you know there are many instances where physicians have saved lives um, just by feeling a mass that an extender may not have felt or that someone who's not an MD or DO may have felt. Uh, it is very important to be able to share those stories. Those real-life stories make a real difference. They have a huge impact on a, a legislator's appreciation for the importance of, of the practice of medicine by physicians. Now, I know there's a couple of weeks yet before the event. Am I able, if I'm a physician in the state, can I participate in that in some way? And how do I do that? Well, absolutely. And we hope you will uh, for, for all the physicians who are listening. Uh, you can contact my office. You can reach Liz Bullock. Uh, she is actually coordinating from the MAG perspective. Uh, each of your specialty societies has also received an invitation. Each of your county medical societies has received an invitation. But you can reach Liz Bullock at 678-303-9271. That is a direct number, uh, so no one has any excuses to not be able to participate. Uh, we will start the day with a debriefing uh, that's going to begin at 9 o'clock. Uh, we'll have a photo opportunity with the governor at 1030. And throughout that morning, we will actually um, have given instruction on how physicians can talk with their legislators. We'd like to set up as many meetings prior to that day with their legislators as is possible. Um, the culminating event will be a luncheon at noon uh, where we've invited several legislators and physicians, hopefully they'll be able to sit together and um, and talk about the issues of the day when it comes comes to medicine. So if I want to participate, I'm coming for a given district. You're saying that uh, the association will help facilitate me actually getting to speak with uh, the representative or senator or whatever the case may be that I would need to talk to. Absolutely. Okay. Before we run out of time, I, I'm always marveling uh, at how quickly our time goes on the show. But uh, before we jump off the show today, any other topics that we want to try to get out there while we're while we're sitting here? I don't know about a specific topic, but I, I want to stress really what the medical association is for, and this is, I think, uh, wrapped up in our, I guess, for lack of a better term, mission statement, and that is that. Uh, our mission is to enhance patient care and the health of the public. That's why we exist in the first place. Uh, we're sometimes seen as a, uh, a physician-only organization, and only if it uh, is negative or detrimental to physicians do we take positions. But I think if you carefully examine what we go down and advocate for and about, it's because we feel it takes a detrimental effect on the patient that we take care of. 
uh, you know, all of us except for maybe Marcus mm-hmm. are very much part-time uh, people that deal with the legislature. But we deal with our patients uh, who often are our friends, right. or people we've had decades-long associations with on a day-in and day-out basis. And what angers most physicians most is when you start getting in the way of them taking care of their patients appropriately. Yep. I was, you know, as you were saying that, uh, that, that one of the things that I was thinking about is the fact that I know that uh, our legislators have the interests of their community and heart and most of the time. And uh, when it comes to passing legislation that affects the delivery of health care, I know that the overall goal is obviously to either advance the health of our citizens or to try to curb costs because we all know that, uh, that that it's expensive to deliver health care and there are some opportunities I'm sure for improving things but I know uh, I come from a physician practice here in the community and I know that uh, sometimes the the way we try to go about it from a legislative perspective doesn't take everything into account it causes unintended consequences and it ends up can you know a given idea can cause hurdles as you talked about whether it's you know even down to just a, a measure of how effect, efficiently a phys- physician can conduct the course of their day to provide care document what they're doing and then actually get reimbursed for it so the physician can stay in business to provide care for more people um so uh, i i personally understand the importance of having an organization like the medical association of georgia out there uh, going to bat for the physicians who are trying to provide care in the best way that they can and i do know that it's not just related to the business end of things uh, just from a uh, a self-serving perspective i know that uh, it has much to do with uh, trying to deliver health care in a in a uh, an efficient fashion to the benefit of our patients so uh, any other thoughts that we have before we have to jump uh you know, again, I, th- I think it's important that every physician be involved. They should know their local legislator, and not just during when they're in session. Uh, they don't realize that they are reading just about as much during session as we did in medical school. They don't have the degree of time to form a true relationship during the session. You do that between sessions. You meet them for lunch. You go talk to them at their office. You communicate them by email. You get to know one another. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to understand and to know where someone's coming from when you know that person. And that's the most critical thing that any of us can do to make sure that the voice of medicine is appropriately heard uh, down under the gold dome. And I know that for myself as a voter in the state, I, I previous to the last couple of years, never contacted my representatives, never reached out to them whatsoever until we started passing some really significant laws here of late that really began to have a a heavy hand of influence over our our practice. Uh, And uh, and it wasn't all positive. Uh, And so I certainly appreciate the fact that that's something that we can do, that we should do. I think today uh, it's vitally important that uh, all of us in the healthcare space start uh, talking about how these different things influence us and, and affect what we try to do. So Thank you, Dr. Green, for taking time away from your busy practice to uh, share some information about what's coming up with Medical Association and uh, Marcus, you as well, for uh, for getting together with us to talk about how do we go about this process and how can somebody take uh, part in that process to uh, advance our state of healthcare 
uh, delivery here in Georgia. So if you haven't done so already, uh, the Medical Association of Georgia is on Twitter at MAG, M-A-G, 1849. Same thing on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash MAG, 1849. If you haven't done so already, link up with Top Docs on Facebook and Twitter as well. We try to tie in with all of our guests. We're certainly done. Uh, we've done that with the uh, Medical Association of Georgia. You can do so with the show. If you haven't already on Twitter and Facebook at Top Docs, on brx and uh, thank you all for taking some time appreciate it very much getting to sit down with you and uh, make sure that you make an appointment to see us next week 2 30 same time same place we'll see you then 